Octothorpe Podcast Corner is from me this time. Hang on, I'm going to sneeze. Well, that's the pre-show. Just Liz refusing to sneeze after promising us a sneeze. <laughs> sneeze, Liz. Sneeze. Sneeze. It's there. Hang on. No, it's gone now. See you. Get no. off. If you shout sneeze at someone loudly enough, they can't sneeze. And it's the worst thing. Like, it's banished me every time I try and sneeze. And it is, it, it should be banned. Um, but it is hilarious. Do it to your loved ones. They will be so annoyed with you. Sorry, Liz. We <laughs> made Alison cry again. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, that's the goals of podcast of the year. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very 55th episode of Octothorpe, the podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 14th of April 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. We got nominated for a Hugo Award. I was going to say, (laughs) do we have any news this week, guys? I don't know. I was too busy being nominated for a Hugo Award. It's so exciting. Quite nice. Very happy. Yeah, it's very nice. Congratulations to everyone else who was nominated for a Hugo Award, specifically in the fan cast category. Um, it's a really good ballot. We're really happy to be on the ballot with the other fan casts, and we'd be very happy to lose to one of them, as we fully expect to do. Yes, so the other nominees, or sorry, the other finalists are Be the Serpent, the Cood Street Podcast, Hugo Girl, Our Opinions Are Correct, and World Building for Masochists. Us and Hugo Girl are new to the ballot this year, and we would be very happy to lose to any of the other finalists, but I think we would all be particularly thrilled to lose to Hugo Girl, so we recommend everyone goes and listen to them, because they are brilliant. Because we really like it. And we all listen to... No, I don't know if we all listen to it. I, I listen to Hugo Girl very regularly. We do. We all listen to it. Especially their most recent episode, which was them opening a bottle of champagne and just squeeing a lot, which was lovely. Haven't heard that yet. <laughs> I haven't got around to that. Shit, we should have opened a bottle of champagne and squeed a lot, guys. John, can you add some fake champagne popping noises? Because it is 10.30, so I feel it's a little bit early for the fits. Yes, wit- witness this, Liz. Okay, so for people who don't have video on their podcast, that was John beatboxing champagne opening. (laughs) Well, that's the name of the episode. We did actually get the email saying um, your Hugo finalists at about 11 o'clock at night. It's quite late. Um, I was in bed and... It was 6am Bangkok time and we did not ring Liz. And it was 6am Bangkok time and, and John and I were on chat going, should, should, we, should we make it? Should we phone Liz? Should we phone Liz? See, so the way I found out we had a Hugo nomination was I looked at my phone and I had like 97 messages from John and Alison and I thought, either John and Alison had an argument while I was asleep or we got an email about Hugos. <laughs> that, that first one was not impossible. It has happened. <laughs> oh yeah i mean that's why that's why liz very sensibly didn't immediately rule it out uh but i'm glad it was the second one <laughs> no so thank you so much to everyone who nominated us it is a genuine uh thrill and we're all very surprised and excited and we're all going to be in chicago i mean assuming nothing goes wrong we are all planning to be in chicago for worldcom are we because liz was like i'm not 100 percent. oh no 
And I'm like, I'm booking flights next week after Easter. <laughs> I'm not 100% yet. Chicago sent us a nice thing saying, if you're finding it hard to manage the cost of going to a Worldcon, then consider applying for our fund for underprivileged people. And and obviously, the problem I've got is that I am dripping in privilege, but I'm not dripping in money. So, But I have managed <laughs> to find just about enough money to go. But obviously, I can't, you know, if you if you want to support underprivileged people to go to Shycon, please do that. Don't don't support me. I can find the money. But if anyone was thinking of sending Alison some rare emeralds, then uh, this would be the week. <laughs> yeah, have we mentioned Alison's rare emeralds collection lately? If anyone ever sends me vintage emeralds at this point, they're going straight <laughs> in the Worldcon bursary fund for underprivileged people who aren't me. Uh, this segues very neatly into letters of comment because lots of listeners wrote to us to congratulate us uh, for our nomination. And thank you to everyone who got in touch. We really appreciate it, even if we didn't respond to everyone individually. But yes, thank you so much to everyone uh, for their kind words. But let's get into the subject of podcast diss tracks, uh, because Ali Baker recorded a diss track based on something Liz and Allison said. Liz and Allison, take it away. What's a diss track? What do you mean? What's a diss track? It's when you. It's when a rapper drops a track that disses another rapper. Oh, oh, diss! Right. I mean, but we were wrong, and Ali explains why very nicely in her uh, latest episode of Fantasy Book Swap. She thinks we were wrong. Well, she doesn't think we're wrong. She just thinks we. Um, you said that um, a deadly education um, challenged class in Harry Potter, and I think you said it might have been one of the first books to do it. And then she uh, dived into some of the history about that in her latest podcast episode because that is her research specialism. So she is a quantifiable expert. Yeah. Okay. So I think we should say that whenever we veer close to a topic that one of the three of us is an expert on, we veer back sharply, noticeably, what the weather is like outside Liz's window and what the virus is like. And I'm not an expert on anything, so it's quite easy that way, except being old. That's not true. You're an expert on t-shirts, Alison. Okay, we do talk about t-shirts quite a lot, so maybe not then. Yeah, but anyway, so yes, a proper academic has taken us to task for doing a podcast where we went off on one about her research topic which is fine which is which is fair because i don't think i don't think we ever claim to be giving more than our own half-assed views on the subject oh and it's a wonderful like it's more than fair it's it's brilliant i really enjoyed the episode it was very good um and we've not had an entire podcast episode letter of comment before so thank you very much to <laughs> ali for that and we will put a link in the show notes we will indeed malcolm hutchison wrote in to say John only has one shelf of board games. Is it a very long shelf? Now, I was using the word shelf to mean a piece of furniture on which there are many shelves, which I appreciate is um, one of those uh, irregular nouns, which is deeply unhelpful. Yeah, the the, 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 the word you're looking for is bookcase, I believe. Well, no, because it's not a bookcase. It's a set of shelves. It's too deep. Well, because, and I've got a bookcase behind me, which does have game content on it, but most like bookcases are too shallow for board games. That's why the Kallax has been so um, popular for gamers, because it is deep enough to actually fit board games on. But I have a bookcase behind me that has lots of kind of role-playing books and stuff on it. And then I have a set of shelves downstairs, which has all of the actual board games on it. Uh, And so it depends how you count, Malcolm. Uh, I think you should come and see my board game collection and play some. It's quite big. I just want to say that the look on Liz's face now is, I want you guys to finish by 11 o'clock and John is going off on one about his shelves. (laughs) 
No, no, my, my look was John just out of context saying it's quite big. <laughs> Liz, family show. We also got a um, note from DC. DC said that they would like to thank Alice and Scott and Duncan for the demonstration of the utility of removing glasses and growing a beard as an effective disguise. Duncan also tweeted us saying, Aha, let me listen to Octothorpe cast. Ooh, has Alison committed evil yet? Ah, the photo of John is terrifying. Curses. Liz made the joke I was about to tweet in the actual podcast. And he concludes that that was an emotional roller coaster. And we're sorry for the inadvertent emotional roller coaster, Duncan. We, we should maybe say this is all about um, uh, last week's cover art, which, if you haven't seen it, um, you should go and look at it. I can't describe it. Nick Gibbons reacted to the gif of me being very sweaty at weddings with good lord it's too early for this and we would like to sincerely apologize to anyone for whom this is their first episode of Octothorpe coming off the back of our Hugo nomination because if you scroll down far enough on our Twitter there is I'm so sorry we didn't think that through uh basically long story short I get very sweaty at weddings let's just draw That's from a last discreet time. I mean, veil. you need to listen to last episode or the episode before when you guys were expressing some concern that the first people th- thing people might see on the Octopot Twitter feed was the um, was the sweaty John gif or oh, sweaty do- John sweaty John gif. This is this is hard. Words are hard. <laughs> I think our podcast official should be gif. We're gif people. I was like, well, I think that anyone whose first reaction to, on hearing the Hugo ballot is to scroll down the Twitter feeds of the best fancast category is um. It probably deserves everything they get. Not sure anyone deserves that sweaty John gift. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I made it like I kind of it came out. And I was like, "Is this going to come out well?" And I was like, "Oh." <laughs> okay, and then finally, Johnny Badley writes. He really appreciates the in-depth discussion of things like how world cons work. As someone who isn't as embedded in fandom, it's really helpful. And then followed up with, is there any way we can donate to the podcast to help pay for hosting and Weetabix? And the short answer to that is, uh, we'll all be at EasterCon and we all drink beer. So if anyone feels like they would like to donate to the podcast, uh, please do feel free to buy us one pint of beer and we will all share it with a little straw. We have to have an evening in the bar where we do this, this um, because we already have a beer that we're going to drink together. We do need to drink a beer with three straws under our masks, though. Now, oh, shall I bring three bendy straws to Eastercon? Yes, it is something we've sort of vaguely discussed after Jolly asked, and I think the basic conclusion is that this podcast does not cost enough to run, and we are not sufficiently unwealth privileged that we feel it would be a good use of anyone's money so um yeah full disclosure guys this podcast currently mostly paid for by the occasional adverts for stow shirts we'll put a link in the um show notes um who will be at eastercon so one other way you can support the podcast is to buy stuff from allison yeah i will put a link so that you can buy more things but so, so, so the i pay for bits and pieces of our hosting so far and um and i also do ads occasionally and every so often somebody buys a sweatshirt and it all sorts of adds up so it's fine on the topic of octothorpe merch there will be a misprinted octothorpe t-shirt at the amaze balls table at eastercon and alison do you want to tell the listeners about amaze balls 
Um, it's actually we're doing two things at Easter for the fan funds. There will be a fan funds table, which you can need to come and find in one of the dealers' rooms. And it is doing two different enterprises. The first is a silent auction. And you don't need to be at EasterCon for this. You can bid online. Um, and there'll be lots of things in the silent auction, which might include the misprinted T-shirt, actually. I don't think it's necessarily going to be an Amazeballs prize. And then the other thing we're going to be doing is, and you also probably don't need to be at EasterCon for this either because we may be doing a virtual version of it, is you donate money to the fan funds for spins of a bingo spinner. And when you spin the bingo spinner, you get a ball numbered between 1 and 90. And we say something like, I don't know, two little ducks, 22 or something of that kind. And um, we give you a prize. Every single spin wins and spins cost a pound or six for a fiver. And some of the prizes are amazing. That's what's called balls. Some of the prizes are amazing, but not necessarily in the way you'd want. And if you'd like to give us your prizes back, that'll be an extra pound. <laughs> I have a variety of things that I'm bringing to EastCon for the fan funds. I've got a tiny little astronaut keychain, which is very cute and lovely. Uh, and I've also got a hilariously oversized pair of Dr. Pepper branded underpants. So, you know, paying that pound to redonate may or may not be something you want to do, depending on the prize. Yes. Friend of the podcast, Dave Coxon and I once wore the Dr. Pepper underpants because they are large enough that you can fit one um, human man in each leg. And so there is a photo of the two of us on Insta in these underpants. We're fully clothed, obviously. And therefore in the show notes, yes? Yes, I will. we will link to it in the show yeah, notes yeah. if you want to know what you could win. And we are going to be recording live at EasterCon. We'll be recording at Monday at 1.30pm. We are on the programme at 1.30 in Endeavour on the Monday. Oh, the other thing you could do to support the podcast is vote for Conversation 2023 for the EasterCon. I hope you guys are voting for me. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> I mean, it's an open vote, right? Show of hands on the floor, right? So Alison will know if we voted for her. It's an open vote, show of hands on the floor, but I don't mind. People are okay to vote for the other bit. I don't have a problem with it. It's We're basically offering a completely different choice for the EasterCon. So. Do we know it's an open show of hands? Because I've never been to a contested bit session and I don't know what they are like. Back in the day, it was an open show, an open show of hands, and then if it is not obvious which bidders won, it is then taken to a lobby vote, like like Parliament. You actually walk through the door, and somebody counts you. You might very well think that a serpentine would be a better way to do it, and you would be right. But that's how it's done. It's done as a lobby, so it's a show of hands. And if it's not obvious, it's a lobby vote. And it might even be eyes and nays, but I think it's show of hands because eyes and nays don't aren't public, right? Well, yeah, but they also privilege people with louder voices, whereas hands only privilege people who have two hands. Do I have a problem with... Do I have... Yeah, but I mean, obviously we, we have... Yes, a you do, Alison. You have oh. a principled problem. Are you saying I have loud voice privilege, John? Does anybody else on this podcast have loud voice privilege? The entire podcast? Anyway, I was, not, I was, I was saying other people are free to vote for whatever they want, but what I'm saying is if John and I vote against Alison, she will know. Yeah, I will know and I won't mind. It's fine. And also, another way you can support this podcast at the bidding session is by voting for EasterCon 2024. I do want to say something about I am very excited that the three of us will be at EasterCon together. It's something I have been hoping to do for a long time and it's really good. And this podcast is dropping on Maundy Thursday, so lots and lots of people are going to be listening it while being a bit sad they can't be at Easter Cobb. But there's some virtual stuff, and I think we'll be live streamed. So I think Octothorpe Live is probably going to be live streamed. 
Live, Octothorpe Live. Yeah. Yeah, Octothorpe Live, actually live um, and also recorded. So the Hugo Award finalists are out. Do we think there is a clear influence of the Chinese supporting members for Tricon on those nominations? I confess I can't see anything that I am surprised is on the ballot from an Anglo-centric perspective. So my inclination is that it has not necessarily had the big effect we expected it might. What do you two think? The only thing I did wonder about was the Korean film Space Sweepers, um, which is not necessarily... It's a bit of a surprise on the Best Dramatic Presentation ballot. It's not a huge surprise. Um, I'm looking forward to watching it because I haven't done that. Um, The only person I know who's watched it is Fran because Fran watches everything. Well done, Fran. But she's my only letterboxed friend who's seen it so far. Um, I'm sure I'll watch it in the next little bit. But I didn't see any Chinese. It looked like "Ah, it's a really good ballot. It's full of lovely things. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on it. I'm going to like push back slightly on the Space Sweepers thing in that Space Sweepers came out on Netflix, right? I'm not sure you can officially watch Netflix in China. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So it probably represents no Chinese influence whatsoever there. Alison talks total bollocks again. Can you believe it, listeners? Well, I think you may have fallen into the risk of saying, you know, something which is, it is the only kind of non, um, you know, non-US nominee, I guess, non-US or UK possibly. Um, but I think that just reflects people you know, watching a bit more widely and not necessarily a particular country's influence. I think you could well be... I think I understand why Alison called it out because I do think, like, if, it, you know, I I think a lot of Chinese fans do have the ability to watch things that are not officially able, uh, available in China. But I will say that especially Korean science fiction seems to be having a real moment in in Anglo-speaking countries at the moment, like because Squid Game, I think, did a lot to promote Korean. It's especially, I, I mean, I suppose not necessarily in books. I haven't seen much by Korean authors outside of Clark's World, which, which has done a lot of Korean translation. But um, certainly in terms of kind of like film and TV, um, it's interesting. Uh, so yeah, I wonder whether this is the effect of Squid Game, um, which I really liked. I'm looking forward to watching the movie. And this year sees the youngest ever Hugo finalist. Yes. So um, congratulations to Lorelai Esther, who is nominated in Best Fan Artist and is the youngest ever Hugo finalist, the um, Hugo nerds tell me. I feel a bit aggrieved about this because back in the day when Plockter got all its nominations, it was not custom and practice to put everyone who was um, a major part of the process of getting the fanzine together on the list for the Hugos. So so Plockter just had the three main editors and not the rest of the team. But we were very much a team. And that include, team included two babies and a cat. One of my children would have been the youngest ever Hugo finalist. And then we'd have had to argue whether cats can be Hugo finalists. And I think probably they shouldn't be. I think that was bad. But we could not have done the fanzine without them. I think that's everything on Hugos. Is that everything on Hugos? Yeah, I don't think I have any good... We're very happy. Do we say that bit already? Opinions. We said that several times, I think. Oh, no, I have one more thing. Tiny thing. It's a new category for me. Collecting categories. I'm not as good as Sean and Maguire, who I think has just picked up a sixth, fifth. The Hugo nerds will tell us. I'm excited to read the fanzine. Uh, I had not realised she had done a fanzine. Uh, it, it's very rare that something comes up on the fanzine ballot that I had not 
like any idea about and so i am excited it's also it's also fiction quite unusual for fiction fanzines to get on the ballot yes no and it's also very rare that fiction congratulations seanan and yeah i think i think that's a fifth category but anyway so it's my best fan cast is my second category and i am very excited Probably the sixth, isn't it? Because I bet she's been in every single short fiction and long fiction category. Oh, no, plus... And series. And series, but and best related work. So it's probably seven. Yeah, no. So she's been nominated in novel, novella. I assume she's been nominated in novelette, but that is an assumption. Short story, best related work, best series and best fanzine. Don't do a, don't do a fan cast, Shauna. She, oh, no, she was. She won for Fancast in, in the first three years of the category's inauguration. She was on SF Squeakast. Seanan is clearly trying to get the entire set. I mean, I respect that. Um, but no, yeah, she um, she won with Paul Cornell and other authors who temporarily escaped me for SF Squeakast way back in the start of the fancast category. And they had a run of wins. Also, we forgot best graphic story. So, <laughs> so how is that? Nine? I've lost count. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Seanan, if you're listening, do write in. But congratulations for your uh, nominations uh, this year, um, especially for the Wayward Children uh, series, because I do love those uh, books. I was going to say on the Hugos, it, I think it is nice to see that there, like, there are categories where there are people who have been nominated for it who were nominated again and have all done good work. But it is nice to see a few uh, new people popping into each category. Um, particularly, I think there are three first-time nominees in Best Fan Writer this year. Uh, Chris Barkley, Bitter Corella and Alex Brown. Um, there are new people in Fan Artist. Uh, there are new people in Fanzine, as we just said. We are new people in Fancast. Like, I think it's nice to see a little bit of turnover in some of these categories where you can have you know, some of the same nominees year after year. And they sometimes do very good work, but it's nice to see other people get nominated as well. I think that's right. Ogdethorpe Podcast Corner. I've been listening to podcasts again. And the podcast I've been listening to specifically is the Life Writing Podcast, which comes from the team of Tanana Reevedew and Stephen Barnes, who are a... Uh, husband and wife uh, writing team and they've started a podcast um where they give writing advice they have interviews they are and the reason i like it is one they have a very good rapport as you would expect um because they know each other so well but that also carries over to their interviews where they obviously have great rapport with their interviewees um and it is very much focused on writing but i think a lot of the stuff they discuss and the advice they give kind of applies to writing but also to your non-writing life and is very applicable to that and i would say stephen barnes in particular asked some very uh, insightful questions so i've been listening to that and enjoying that recently cool thank you liz no and and, and i think that sounds like a very good um, idea for a podcast. Um, so, hurrah. It does sound good. I mean, I listened to it because they had an interview with uh, Brian Fuller, who I love, of Hannibal and Pushing Daisies and Star Trek fame. Mm, yes. Yes. Fair enough. In an excellent demonstration of how timely we are, we're going to pick up on the Brandon Sanderson Kickstarter, um, which launched a few weeks ago and which has rapidly become the most funded project on the platform. Um, so, yes, what do we think about this, Alison and Liz? 
Well, first of all, I want to thank Alex Holden, um, uh, Mr. Holden makes exceedingly good concertinas, for suggesting this topic. So it's quite a funny Kickstarter video. I'm sure everybody who listens to this podcast has already heard about it now. Um, but if you haven't, go and stop the podcast now. Go and watch the Kickstarter video, which is quite funny. And we're going to spoil it now. So then you can come back. He basically said, I have to confess something. There's a lot of lockdown confessionals. And the thing I am confessing is that I accidentally wrote four extra novels in lockdown. He actually wrote five, but there are four in the Kickstarter. And the Kickstarter is A New Way to Buy Novels by Brandon Sanderson. And you can also pay extra money. If, if you don't just want a load of novels from Brandon, you can also get a load of extra things like, I don't know, T-shirts and and other merchandise objects and it's all secret so you can get like a Brandon Sanderson Kickstarter uh, Brandon Sanderson subscription box arriving in your post every week month month I think it's month and um they did 41 million dollars I mean I'm not sure I want a subscription box from anyone once a month and if I think about who I might want one for none of the people that come to mind are science fiction authors so you know but on this topic, uh, if you're interested in an Octothorpe once a month subscription box, do let us know. It will contain a piece of Weetabix and a ribbon every month until we run out of Weetabix and ribbons. Look, you can get different flavours of Weetabix. Yeah, but we're not going to be putting that level of effort in, listeners, and please disregard Liz's attempt to make this more interesting. You can get different flavours of Weetabix. Weetabix comes in two flavours, which are Weetabix and Abominations. <laughs> Okay, so the months Alison is in charge of the box, you get original Weetabix only. And the months Alison is in charge of the box, you get Weetabix abomination. Liz, do you have any thoughts about this? Yes. So I thought it was very interesting because I saw the numbers going up on the Kickstarter, but I would never imagine it would get to $41 million. So I was going to say it again, because I need to say it a few times for it to sink in. $41 million. But I think I think it's it's very interesting. So Brandon Sanderson has written a very long blog post uh, about it, which we will link to. But I think some of the main issues are that it's clear that Brandon Sanderson, this is not just Brandon Sanderson himself getting one $41 million. This is Brandon Sanderson essentially using these $41 million to be his own Brandon Sanderson publishing house in a way. And it's clear that what he wants is partly to, you know, to see if they could do this, but also to show that for him, there is a viable option, you know, should Amazon, which represents the lion's share of his sales, go away. And also it's to demonstrate to his publishers that actually there is an appetite, um, you know, an appetite for buying things in these different formats, because, you know, it is $41 million, but he has 23,000 people who pledged $500, um, you know, to get the swag boxes and all the premium hardbacks and the audio books and the ebooks, you know, so that clearly there is a significant market of people out there who just want the ebooks from him, but also a large chunk of people who are happy to pay extra for things like premium hardcover books and signed premium hardcover books. And I think it really shows that there is an appetite for books from him. Okay, I'm going to bring us a box of Weetabix to sign. <laughs> So I think this is really interesting because I think there are, especially in the pandemic, there is a growing awareness that a lot of the people whose media I consume are very precarious. And this is something I've been noticing, especially in the podcasting scene, but I imagine it also extends to authors, um, which is that like as kind of 
especially in podcasting as advertising money has been drying up during covid um many of them have been moving towards models where you can support them directly and i do think that what we're seeing here is a lot of people who are like well brandon sanderson is my favorite author by a very long way and this is a way that i can both support him and get loads of swag i can't get anywhere else into the deal and there are quite a few podcasts i support where i'm like i could not support them like i don't necessarily need to but i like supporting them and like getting the exclusives is a nice kind of thing into the bargain so i do wonder how many of the people supporting are just kind of huge fans who are keen to support him as an independent artiste I mean, that is true, although I would say if you wish, like, if you're picking authors who you wish to support so that they can continue, you know, making a viable living at it, you probably wouldn't start with Brandon Sanderson, who, you know, is quite clear about his sales and so on on the blog post. And, you know, he's saying that he sells 350,000 copies in week one of his books. So if you are supporting people, then, you know, Brandon Sanderson is probably not at the top of the list of people who are going to have a problem without, without the Kickstarter support. While that is true, I do pre-order. So, like, there are authors I know who are not, who are kind of like mid-list authors who I love who I want to support, and I pre-order their books. But, like, so one good example is Dan Morin. I pre-order all his books. But, like, he does not have the ability to do this. So, like, on the one hand, you wouldn't necessarily choose to do it with Sanderson. But on the other hand, like, it's not like there were 20 Kickstarters by a bunch of authors and I got to pick which one. And so that's part of the problem here, I think. Except that Sanderson was also slightly surprised by how successful this Kickstarter was. He was not expecting it to do $41 million. And one of the ways they have given back, and I think this is very meritorious, really, is that they went, there's a, there's a video of this too that we could also put in the show notes. They went and backed every Kickstarter in the publishing category on Kickstarter as a way of saying thank you. So, there are probably I'm certain that there are a lot of very small authors whose life is precarious who got a little bit more money because Brandon Sanderson A went and kicked, supported them and B did a video about it so that his 350,000 followers or however many will all have um gone and seen all of those other kickstarters in the publishing category and they will also have got some love I should think so I mean I basically think Brandon Sanderson is a jolly good egg um I was a bit worried that Tor might be very upset by all of this but apparently Tor are quite thrilled I have been told not by not by anyone at all. Tor believes that the people who back this Kickstarter are often going to go and buy Brandon Sanderson's backlist, which is all on Tor. If if you are someone who, yeah, if you're if you're publishing things that have Brandon Sanderson written on them, you must have been quite happy that Brandon Sanderson was in the news a lot for the last six weeks. <laughs> like, that's got to be that's got to be reflecting well on your bottom line as well as on everyone else's. I should probably read some Sanderson, but I feel like it's... I've always thought everything about it has made me think it's the sort of thing I'd absolutely hate. You would hate it, yeah. Correct. Well, okay. I won't then. But he seems like a really nice bloke in lots of ways. Would I hate it, John? I don't know. You like some things, but you don't like other things. And I sometimes find it difficult to predict which (laughs) edge of the line you'll be on. True of most predictions. Basically, if you want to read a series of 10 novels which comprise two million words Alison then I may have misjudged your taste in literature uh because I think that sounds like what you would like is all of that character development and plot to be in a tight 40,000 word novella and I don't know how you'd achieve that but I think that's what you'd want I'd want it to not have any extraneous words he also has very good advice he does stuff about how to write and how to do hard things that is very interesting because he 
he repudiates the notion that writers are people who cannot do anything else but write and he is a big fan of the notion that if you want to be a science fiction writer you should sit down and write every day and I would endorse that sort of approach to doing anything that is hard um, and I think he's so I think his his advice on how to become good at things is also is also quite good so clever boy and he's also very rich now which is nice he, he, I guess he runs a bit organization big enough to have an HR director is that what you said Liz uh, yes he's basically got I mean to fulfill this kickstarter he's basically going to have a small publishing outfit that he runs so yes I think the 41 million is he's you know he's going to do well off it but it's it's also going to be split a lot of ways I mean he's essentially funding a small company from it well and also I think um like his stated reasons in his blog post to like to try and re- reduce the dominance that Am- Amazon has on his um on his career as Liz was mentioning earlier and there's also the potential that if his publishing venture goes well enough for him he might start being able to sort of publish things by kind of other authors and so this is potentially very exciting and in general i think it's also quite exciting that the biggest kickstarter of all time is for a bunch of books and book related merchandise in our genre that is i think a huge thing that i'm very excited about because it shows that there's potentially a lot of life there and like it kind of it's just nice to be in a in a scene that is kind of growing and has enthusiasm and i think this kickstarter shows that those things are true and um and yeah i think um sanderson increasing the profile of our little slice of life can only be a good thing said like a true optimist yeah it's particularly good because some of the other biggest kickstarters of all time are for vaporware nonsense so (laughs) i mean i'm fairly sure brad sanderson will actually deliver on his kickstarter that that is the other thing like this isn't the laser shaving blade i mean full disclosure i don't think any of us back the kickstarter i'm just going to buy the ebooks when they come out in the shops yeah i thought about buying the ebook one actually but i'll probably just get the ebooks if i decide i like brandon sanderson by then which i probably won't i mean to be fair i'll probably just borrow them from the library but you know let's do picks my pick is Rossum's Universal Robots, which is, of course, the play from 1921 by Carl Shapek that invented the word robots, though the robots in the play are not, in fact, robots in the way that we normally think about them because they are they are grown from flesh in a rather horrible way. My pick's not the play itself, which is problematic in a few ways, but the new Radio 4 production of it on Radio 4's play for today, I guess, but I'd play for this week anyway, or now I think they just go, well, we've got a podcast that we put plays in it. But this isn't Octothorpe Podcast Corner, because radio shows are radio shows, and podcasts are podcasts, and they're very different. Anyway, it is a Radio 4 production, where they have dealt with the problematic nature of this play by um, making it a musical comedy. And it's quite good. And it's the first episode was a couple of days ago, and is on Radio 4, and we'll put a link in the show notes. And then I think the next one's later today, and I think it might only be a two-part production, but it's actually very hard to tell on the BBC website whether it's two parts or seven parts, and and they should think about that. BBC, if you're listening, um, we could tell you a thing or two about producing audio shows. Not really. <laughs> I think I think this um, uh, Hugo nomination has gone to your head here, Alison. But I really like it. Um, Rossum's Universal Robots, and it's good stuff. 
It's on BBC Sound, so it might be available worldwide. Yeah, and it is on BBC Sound, so if you have access to that, you can get it there. My pick is a book, and it may even tie in unexpectedly to our Brandon Sanderson discussion. So my pick is a book called Base Notes by Lara Elena Donnelly, and it is about Vic, a perfumer who has discovered the secret of making perfumes which will perfectly recreate a memory for the person who experienced that memory. So essentially you sniff this scent and you experience a perfect recreation um, of a memory. Um, The catch is that in order to do this, one of the ingredients for the perfume has to be taken from the dead body of one of the people in the memory. So it is essentially about Vic who is uh, you know so the protagonist throughout this book is a is a serial killer they have murdered multiple people and will go on to kill more so it is quite you know it's it's quite dark it's quite depressing from that sense and i have to say i enjoyed the first part more where it is them meeting a bunch of people and kind of coming up with a plot for the latest perfume than from the later stage of the book which do involve basically a lot of killing which escalates as like they come closer and closer to being discovered. But it's also, it's other aspect is it's all set in kind of, it's New York and it's, you know, Vic is a perfumer and the other people involved, you know, there's a barber, there's a kind of a bartender and a tailor. And it is all about this sector of society who are kind of creative people who on the surface seem to be making a reasonable living, but really they're just sort of clinging, clinging on to being able to afford to have this life, to have an apartment, to be creative and they are pitted against essentially a, a large you know business corporation that they get entangled with and that's why they're making these perfumes you know so it's basically sort of like the precarious millennials um and and gen z of new york versus the big corporations who are basically destroying that so i thought that was a really interesting angle to it um and it's a very like evocative book it is full of descriptions of scents and how they are made and kind of everyone seems to be you know a lot of stuff is identified by scent and it's clear that Vic has a real passion for perfume outside their other you know murderous inclinations so I quite enjoyed it. There's a very famous book called Perfume by Patrick Suskind which is about somebody who well it doesn't have the entire thing of this but it has some of the features in common and everyone is kind of like oh this is a novel that is not like any other novels so but this Novel does sound like it might be a novel that's a bit like Perfume. Yeah, so I have not read Perfume. Just looking it up, it does sound like it could be a little bit similar or inspired by, yes. I mean, it's obviously quite different, but it, I mean, it feels like, um, I mean, obviously there's nothing new under the sun, but Perfume is, um, it sounds like it might have been one of the antecedents for this book. One of the things that made the author think that this might be an interesting book to write. Yeah. And the other thing, when you were talking about it, it did sound like our... Our hero is um, a creative New York professional who is clinging on to his lifestyle and is also a serial killer. Um, and that's kind of odd. I am going to have to look it up. It sounds cool. The protagonists of Base Notes, uh, no pronouns are ever used for them. And their gender is kind of never, you know, it is never explicitly stated there there's kind of you know some some comments on you know fitting fitting suits to to their shape and things like that but it's never explicitly gendered but it's interesting because i noticed that when alison replied to me you said he i think there's an assumption that serial i'm very sorry that's because historically 99 percent of serial killers are men 
Exactly. I think there's an assumption, it was interesting that there is an assumption that serial killer novels are always about men. And in this case, it is, you know, really, really left ambiguous. And it's mentioned that they present in a very uh, androgynous manner. So I thought that was very interesting. I had an argument with a friend once because we read Scalzi's novel where Scalzi uses a similar trick because it's all in the first person and the um, protagonist never like is never gendered by people they're talking to. So you never know what gender they are. And the, the character was called Chris. And so my friends were like, oh, you know, he this, he that. And um, and I said, oh, well, that's interesting because, like, you know, they're not gendered. And they looked at me and they were like, oh, well, but that's not because we have underlying assumptions. It's because uh, Chris is a boy's name. And I was like, your girlfriend is literally called Chris. Uh, so, like, yeah, there is that. That's quite good. That's actually really interesting. That makes me want to read it a whole bunch more. So it's going on the list. That That is interesting. Especially it's interesting in the context of perfume, because for anyone who doesn't know, perfumes are one of the more gendered things in the world. And they're trying to and have always been. It's not that they kind of went, oh, we can sell twice as much perfume if we if we gender it. It's always been gendered. And so they're just try, now trying to find some gender neutral perfumes and, and doing it, I think, because, you know, then they can sell three times as many perfumes. So they're quite happy with that. I, I will link to in the show notes um, a very good review on tour.com by Lee Mandelo that, that discusses some of the gender aspects in more detail. I thought it's very good. Cool. Thank you very much, Liz. My pick is Moon Knight, but it's not the Disney series. It is the six-issue run, which was written by Warren Ellis, Declan Shelby and Geordie Belair back in 2014 and 15. It is volume seven, uh, of Moon Knight and it is a six issue run that, that Ellis wrote and each issue is kind of a standalone story in a larger anthology. It was my sort of it was my introduction to the character. I heard about the character first on the incomparable uh superhero superhero tournament that they did one summer, which was nonsense and very fun and I enjoyed very much. And Moon Knight got surprisingly far in that tournament and it made me laugh a lot so i decided to seek him out and this little trade paperback is very very good unfortunately it is on amazon 978 pounds and 99p for the paperback but if you're willing to read it in electronic form it's three pounds 19 and i recommend reading it electronically i i mean apologies to anyone who likes physical books um but uh you know I'm not, it's not worth a thousand pounds, peeps, just isn't. But it is definitely worth £3.19, and I would highly recommend going and looking it up. Is is that the bit of Moon Knight that is forming the plot that they're nicking for the TV show, or is that going to be totally different? No, it's because it's not, it's not a single, it's not a single thread. It's sort of more of an anthology. Issue seven and onwards of that volume were written by a different author, and that was much more um, kind of traditional story. But I thought that was not quite as strong as the earlier bits. I've put a link in the show notes. So I can go and get it for £3.19. Yes, or you can subscribe to Marvel Unlimited. Marvel Unlimited is amazing. You pay $69 a year and you get infinite comics. And I read a lot of comics on Marvel Unlimited. 
Yeah, I, I had Marvel Unlimited for one lot of $69 and I I basically bathed in comics for about three weeks and then realised I was a bit fed up with comics and never picked it up again. So I need to... It's clearly something I just want to actually take for a month every so often. That was the Octothorpe podcast and it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. So I think I feel like you're in the stage of life where you're still going, if I read two million words, of, if I read something that I like and then there's two million words of it, that's two million words of stuff I like. And I'm in the stage of life where I go, I have X number of books left in my life and every single one of them has to add value all of the time. I mean, and I, there are lots of long books. I mean, I don't, I would say I generally don't like long books, um, but The Expanse, but I mean, I like Anna Karenina a lot and I'll talk about why. And I'm intending to read War and Peace at some point. And that's pretty long because Anna Karenina was so fantastic. My Latin teacher espoused all the things she liked about it. And she was like, it's so good because Tolstoy, like you're exploring a convoy. And then he's like, oh, now I'm going to go over here and spend 100 pages telling you about this peasant. And I'm like, oh, my God, no, that sounds awful. <laughs> Tolstoy does go off topic. It is quite true. <laughs> you're saying we are the Tolstoy of podcasts. I don't want anyone to think we're comparing ourselves favorably <laughs> to Tolstoy. We we do a better top podcast than Tolstoy ever did. I'm I'm ninety-nine percent certain of that. This is when you find out there's like wax cylinders, Alison, and he had like a weekly radio show. <laughs> weekly cylinder show. Okay, you your grasp of history is not great, is it? Wax cylinders were around in the late eighteen hundreds and Tolstoy died in nineteen ten. Okay, so maybe there is Tolstoy wax cylinder. Sorry, is that did he do a podcast? I mean, write in, listeners. If you're an expert in Tolstoy's podcasting career, please let us know. <laughs> Tolstoy Tolstoy actually wrote letters by dictating them onto wax cylinder because he found it faster than writing. So he basically he, he was he was he was the he was the Christopher J. Garcia of his day. <laughs> look, 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 I have got a link for the show notes. I mean it's in Russian, but you know. Well this is this is excellent. I wasn't expecting my offhand mention that Tolstoy might have done a podcast to go this way, but hurrah. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.